Hi, my name is Sage Latora. I'm here with Adam Blinkensop, and this week, another question. How do you start a new campaign? A new campaign. We, we figured this was topical because uh, Will, is, Will Wheaton is going to start his big new campaign in his own big new setting. And it's branching out for us. I'm kind of glad that we're uh, considering questions outside of things that are directly answered by games. Uh, pretty much all my answers are things from games, yeah. but... Uh, We'll, we'll see how this goes. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff about starting a new game, starting a new campaign, where it's a lot of game design thought that you and definitely your group should be doing uh, is the big thing. Uh, one of the things that struck us about Will Wheaton's discussion about the, the setting he's going to be doing is this big discussion about how him and a team of writers is building a bunch of stuff for the group, which is... Which is cool, but not the way that I like to play, and I don't believe the way that Sage likes to play. Yeah, um, my my brainstorming is really freeform. Mm -hmm. uh, like, this was something that I talked about in our PAX panel on prep. Uh, most of my prep happens either in a bathroom, a car, or while running. Yeah. Um, no, while running the game? No, uh, actually, no. Like, I, I, I exercise. Like, I, I run. Almost. And, yeah. Almost all of my prep is while running the actual game. Well, that happens as well. Uh, and in my head, prep is a lot of tone stuff. I'm very rarely prepping uh, in the way that I, I used to when I was younger, where it's thinking out exact things. It's very much more prepping, um, like, getting myself... Uh, getting myself interested in things, kind of. I think what's interesting about Element X of the game, right? And that that's a big part of my prep. So, how do you start as far as talking to your group? Oh, I I think that the start of a new campaign starts a step back from that. Oh yeah. I, my notes start with uh, the game that you're playing because you have to know the game that you're playing, um, at least in some sense. Like you don't have to be an expert on it, but if you sit down with an RPG book, there are very few books that you can sit down and just play the game from the book the first time. Right, but so you would start by saying, I really want to play Apocalypse World, now how do we play Apocalypse World? Whereas my stuff is, I would rather start by talking to my group and going, what is something insane that you want to go do? Okay, now which system can we grab? So that. that's actually the second thing. I mean, we're looking okay. into the second section of my notes, which is pitching things to people. Sure, sure, sure. Um, because I guess in the sense that I'm talking about preparing a new campaign, I always, like, the, the act of reading a game and getting uh, familiar enough and interested enough in it to run a game with it is the prep that you do even if you're not going to use it, kind oh, of. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, so in, in that sense, like, I have a shelf full of games where, here where all of them, except for the one that's in German, are all prepped. Oh, wait, no, there's an Italian one as well. That Those I really two, want to run type yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're all games that I have read and that I have, uh, if I felt like playing them, I could suggest to a group or listen to a group and see which one fits. Sure. Yeah, the see which one fits is, is almost always the way that I end up going, which is why I have so many weird, like, uh, oh gosh, the uh, Horatio Hornblower mouse guard hack. Mm -hmm. came directly out of that, where I'm just talking with a group of people, and they're like, we want to play naval, and it's like, well, this system would probably work for that, let's figure it out, right? So much of my gaming these days, with so, I mean, it, it kind of falls into a few camps. There's mm -hmm. my regular gaming group, who are my close friends, who are all on such the same page that uh, we we already have a lot of the same ideas. So sure. instead of asking each other, we all kind of throw things out that we're interested in playing and then pick one and go with it. Um, and then with uh, my friends at work who I game with, including you, I'm often just saying, here's the thing that I want to play for reason X, Y, or Z. Right. I think the next thing I'm going to pitch to you guys is something that I want to play test. Um, and, and those, I'm usually pitching it because I'm coming to you guys, uh, not that I don't like gaming with you, but because <laughs> there's a specific thing that I'm not playing with my kind of normal group that right. I want to tap in. And then the rest of my gaming is at conventions, which turns into people asking me to run Dungeon World. Um, there, there are worse things in the world, uh, yeah. But, but yeah, running the same game forever uh, is an interesting time, especially for game designers in general. Um, and we like to try new things a lot of the time. Oh yeah, that's, that's in some ways the most frustrating thing about having a really successful game. Uh, like if you want to see me excited at a con, instead of asking for me to run Dungeon World, uh, look at anything else you can think of and see <laughs> if I know it, and I'll probably say, yes, please, assuming that I have the time and... All that stuff. So the thing about the thing about choosing system first versus so so if you have a system and you're 
going to your group for kind of setting objective theme ideas, which are the big, those are the big suggestions that I see as far as a starting point for a game, right? Mm -hmm. You can take a system, and a system is generally not a starting point for a game. It's a place where, you know, it's a group, a collection of things that are going to help you start your game. But as far as ideas from people, those are almost always going to be, oh, I want to do this. Or I want to be in this area, right? So the way that I tend to pitch, like it, it is along those lines. I think that their games do uh, tend to work better with certain things. But generally, when I'm pitching a game, um, I'm going all the way to the elements that get me interested in it, which is usually something of um, some idea that I have that I might want to see in it. So if like I'm like the Dark Ages game and Skyrim Game of Thrones, exactly. Uh, that that was actually one of the examples that I was going to use. The it wasn't just uh, we want to play this system because this system exists, but we uh, the, for that group actually this game was kind of the culmination of a long thing because I had never read Game of uh, Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, the TV series started and it totally hooked me. Everybody else had already read it and had read it to the point that they didn't quite like it because the books get a little meandering and long. And so I get excited about it. And a few people in my group were just like, no, no. And then everybody started watching the TV show. That got us all on the same page. So it finally happened. Cool. Madness. Um, but yeah, the, the idea of pitching something. Um, my pitch for a game is often about what you want, what I think is interesting about it. Mm -hmm. Um and what it does well. So I'll pitch uh, uh, Songs of the Icelanders about um, the, the, it being a game about uh, people scraping by in a uh, tough environment um, that is kind of isolated from culture, making your own laws, and trying to live with these values you have in a changing world around you. Um, and the thing about that pitch is that that's partially inspired by the book, because in my opinion, a lot of the best RPGs tell you how to pitch them to some degree. Sure. Or at least, uh, do you think that's a that's a cause or an effect, right? Like, if, if the book doesn't tell you how to pitch, it's going to be very difficult, unless you're D&D, &D, to push it to somebody and say, you know, hey, this is a really cool game, and we should go play it, and here's why. If the book doesn't support you in that, well, you know, how is it going to spread, right? Especially since pitching is just saying what's cool about this game. If your game doesn't already tell you the things that are cool about it... Self-marketing is very important. It, and it's, uh, yeah, it's self-marketing and it's also just explaining your game well. If your game does things that are cool and interesting, you better explain those things. So you have a system and you have a really cool setting slash theme slash objective, then what? Um, oh, man, uh... I actually wanted to hit on a couple more things in the second tutorial. Do it, know. do I, it. I was debating just letting them slide, but I think no, no, no. It's um, so the first thing that I want to point out is that when I uh, my approach to starting a new game, which is I guess what I'm trying to get across here, because it works for me, it may not oh, be. Oh, that's the, it's our question that we are answering. That we so, are answering. So it. you answer it, and I answer it, and uh, everybody yeah, else we, can we answer may not it be good for everybody else. Exactly. Um, I always read a text. Uh, like a, a game, with the eye to trying to use it as directly as possible. Um, because I feel like reading it any other way doesn't give me as much. No, uh, totally. The thing that I'm reading a book for, uh, a game for, is because I want it to give me things at the table. And if I immediately start saying, oh yeah, but I, I already know how to do that, I'm just going to cut that out, It, I'm not getting my value out of the book. Um, and, and to me, the, the rules as written in the book, the thing that I'm reading the book for are kind of like a, a warranty. Um, you know, if you play with these rules, uh, you're going to be, this is the thing that we've tried the most and we think it's good for these reasons when we made these rules. Right. But if you start changing things, it could be awesome. Like it, it's like rooting your phone or something like you, you could open up all these awesome possibilities, but you could also brick it. Yeah. You don't um, want to start there. Yeah. That, that's generally where, how I approach it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that ties into pitching it because, uh, I'm actually w not a fan of pitches in a lot of ways. I've been talking about pitching, but I think it gets oversold in a lot of gaming uh, discussion. Um, and especially at cons. Like, I... <laughs> uh, somebody who's done this will probably hear it and know that I was eye-rolling. But uh, I've been at cons where people have that really rehearsed pitch for their game, and I'm sorry, but I was secretly rolling my eyes while you were pitching your really rehearsed pitch for your game. Because it... 
it doesn't seem authentic. Uh, I think when we talk about pitching, or at least when I talk about pitching, I'm talking about the genuine interest in the game. Like sure. the thing that you're doing when pitching a game is talking about why you're excited about that and hoping to give people some of that excitement, mm-hmm. not selling it on TV. So the first time you play a system, you want to play what that system is pitching itself for. Yep. And I want to communicate that pitch in a authentic, genuine way, not sure. a read the back cover kind of thing. Uh, but that, that all takes us up to the actual start of play which is the thing that there's the most to talk about, I think. So you, you feel like setting objective theme, so what kind of prep would you do pre-start of play, though? It depends on the game. So um, let's say, uh, oh, gosh, what's, what's, a, what's a crazy game? Uh, let's say you're, you're going to play, let's say you're going to play Apocalypse World for the purpose of the vast coverage of listeners will understand okay. how Apocalypse World will go. What kind of prep do you do for an Apocalypse World game? Well, that's interesting because it's a game that I've run enough that my prep has shifted. Um, original, so Apocalypse World is a game that I think it's really important to read the text um, and kind of read it carefully and critically uh, and assume that even the things that seem kind of weird are probably thought out. Yeah, pre-prep, pre-prep is absolutely understand the game that's going to get run. Um, and that's not GM only. That's that's everybody. Yeah. Uh, Apocalypse World is a lot more forgiving on the non-GM player side. But but the best situation is that everybody has read this I, thing. Uh, best situation, I guess, I'll probably go with. But I actually... Uh, I, I think this is one of the features of RPGs is actually that a lot of the knowledge can fall... Uh, for many games, uh, a lot of the knowledge can fall to just the, the GM and a couple of people, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this idea that the players also have to know everything actually can hamper the game because it raises the barrier of entry for players. Right. It's not a have to, but uh, it's definitely useful. Um, if, if all of your players have also read this book and also get the ideas and you don't have to explain that in play and you can just kind of immediately run into the thing, everything moves so much faster. It, it does. Um, I think that... The challenge with RPGs as they stand is that uh, the texts are so general purpose. Yeah. Um, you know, D- D&D has tried to do the player's handbook, GM book, all that stuff. Uh, but they still end up being, like, as a player, you kind of can just read the player's handbook, maybe? No way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe an old school D&D, you know. Because because the big thing the big thing about a game like D and D so uh, talking about two different possible campaigns you can run an Apocalypse World one and I'll run a D and D five E one sure uh, the thing about running a D and D game is that your players need to know the decisions that they're making for their character uh, and how that's going to affect the game that they can play yes um, because that's the you know that's the biggest part of D and D and anything else with a very complex character sheet is those decisions that you make on the that initial run. Uh, unless you have a group that's like, well, you know, whatever, you didn't know what you were doing, go ahead and erase everything. If you're playing strictly by the book, uh, you could make a bunch of decisions and then have a terrible time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we generally say, screw it, you can change their skills. And actually, that that brings up one of the biggest tips that I wanted to give for starting a new campaign. Um, something that we often do with our games, to, to varying degrees, is treat the first uh, session like a pilot of a TV show. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and sometimes this is to varying degrees of, like, we will flat out say this is a pilot and we're going to trash it if we don't like it, or it's just kind of implied that in the first session everything's a bit more loose and you can kind of swap your numbers if you still don't like them and everything. Uh, and that gives a lot of... It, it eases those upfront choices in every game because every game has them... Um, and they're not a bad thing to do. I mean, it, the fact that you make upfront choices that matter forever is uh, a great way to make those choices matter. It's important. It's why it's been pulled over to uh, uh, to board games with uh, Risk Legacy and those kind of systems. It's been pulled over to computer games with roguelikes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's a really important thing about RPGs. Yeah. Um, so th- for Apocalypse World, if I'm prepping an Apocalypse World, if I know that uh, I'm probably running it for. Oh man, the the reason that I'm running it kind of plays into how I prep it. Let's uh, since you've said that it's Apocalypse World, I'm going to pretend that you have said I have a group of friends who need Apocalypse World run for them because they're curious about the rule set. Totally. Um, in which case, I would probably start thinking start by thinking up weird things about the apocalypse because uh, this is one of the things that I uh, most Apocalypse World 
apocalypses are kind of Mad Maxi. They're like a desert with wreckage and stuff. Um, I grew up in the desert, so that never seems quite as so like weird, yeah, cataclysmic to me. Um, like I don't know, you'd drive between towns, and sure, there'd be a burned out hulk of a hunk of a car, rusted out, probably not burned out, but like somebody would just have an old car that they never bothered to do anything with, and now it's rusted down and sitting out in a desert. Like that doesn't seem like the apocalypse to me, right? Um, so I often uh, will do things like uh, a really forested apocalypse, or uh, like a water world, or um, urban apocalypses like i i just like to come up with something that makes me interested because in an apocalypse world so much other stuff can be provided by the players sure um and even this like i'm as the gm i'm not necessarily the the absolute word on this like once we interplay the gm in apocalypse world controls the world but when we're getting started if everybody's like actually no we totally want like the, a mad max apocalypse well, okay sure right. um if everybody if everybody wants it you know, that's the way to go. Yeah, that, that initial group discussion about setting and about objective and about theme is so important uh, and enormous. And I think I think you can end up just kind of ignoring a bunch of it on accident and, and then starting the first session and making a bunch of, well, I thought it was going to be like this and uh, I thought we were going to really talk about politics and I thought we were going to really dig into this and ignore this. Um, so systems systems that force that to be a part of the first session is really cool, um, but mm, it's delaying it to that long. I'm actually going to suggest, this is my approach to it, that the more of those things that are discussed without directly discussing them, the better. Sure. Because when you have the, like, sit down and tell me what you want to play discussion, um, first of all, it's kind of awkward in a lot of ways and it ends up feeling very like metagamey and uh I'm, I'm not a big like talk about my feelings about the game kind of person um so this like th- this upfront discussion like that isn't something that i really want to do um so i've found the games that work best for me are ones that bake in a lot of that stuff into um other decisions that i like talking about more um And that can be like, what adventure are we doing if we're doing like Lamentations of the Flame Princess? Or uh, it can be, it can kind of happen in the what game are we playing phase. It can happen in the choosing playbooks phase in like an Apocalypse World game. Um, Because all of those things are making you have that discussion about like, what is our game going to be about? Um, And then you, this is maybe my number one thing, which uh, is if you've played most of the games that we talk about, you've probably already figured out, ask questions. Yeah, Um, for sure. And you ask those questions and the very things that matter to the players and char- the, the characters, uh, not directly to the players. Right. One of the great things about uh, a complex character sheet game is that you can take a look at what people have produced on their character and figure out what they care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, back, back when we played, gosh, 3, 5, and 4E, I would look for people that had weird skills chosen and mm-hmm. find weird ways to pull that out and play. Because... If you just if you just go on autopilot and say, well, okay, we're playing various random fantasy world and you're going to do various random fantasy things, you might never climb up a tree and that would be really sad. Yep. Uh, you know, you want to give people places. That's uh, often referred to as flagging things. Um, and some games do that very explicitly. explicitly. And it always feels, the explicit ones always feel kind of hitting me on the head with it. Like, I want the, the subtle thing where uh, Burning Wheel does this really well. Um, because you're not only doing those kinds of choices, what things your character good at, but those you're making those choices by telling your character's history, basically. You yeah. choose life paths, the things you've done in your life, which all give you the access to skills and things. Um, and through that, you've said a whole lot about the things your character is good at and the things that you see as being the world you're going to play in, mm-hmm. um, which is part of the brilliance of not just having a huge selection of them, but having them broken up into groups. Because right. the fact that I saw the seafaring one and said, I really want to make sure that I get some seafaring ones in there has explained a lot about what I'm thinking of doing in this game. Right. Madness. Okay, so right up to first session then. Um, it depends on the game. Uh, the first session... So this is something that we always do is make characters together um the first session always involves character creation Um, i i I have played i have played so many so so it depends on the game for me Mm -hmm. uh for complex character sheet games i almost always have the negotiation via email 
and a big discussion about, oh, well, we're going to do this, so how are we going to build up our group so that that's even possible, and what sounds cool for everybody to do, and then, okay, go ahead and build your stuff, and when we get together, we'll go over them and, you know, talk about the decisions you made and kind of adjust, because character sheet, character creation in those games is so hard to do, and it's so painful to go through all the books, and it takes so much time uh, and it's just not a very interesting process for somebody else to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I I don't think I've I don't think I've done a character creation in person in those games except for uh, when my di- when my person has died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other than that, it's always it's always pre session. So we pretty much always do it um, partially because their choice in those games are often very parallelizable. Um, and often for a game that that's, comple- that's that complex, all of us have a copy of the rules. Sure. Um, so we can all sit around, and uh, the important thing that I find about it is that there's so much uh, more ability to quickly communicate things as opposed to, like, over email or even chat or something. Um, we can just say, like, oh, uh, it turns out I don't have the extra skill point for this. Like, maybe you can take that. Or um, it turns out that if I reduce this stat by one, I can buy into this life path or all this stuff. Um, so we generally, uh, like the last time that I had people just bring characters, oh man, probably back in college maybe, even then often. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge fan of you've got to make characters together. I like I like both sides. Um, the, the, the other thing I like about, about bringing bringing a completed character sheet or a mostly completed character sheet is that you get you get their raw idea mm-hmm. uh you know a friend of mine always likes playing a swashbuckling pirate and so he'll always bring something along those lines uh, and the more group discussion happens while he's building that the farther away from swashbuckling pirate it will end up being that's actually part of uh why I tend to like it actually as a player because it tends to draw me further out of my comfort zone. Sure. Because I will pretty much always play somebody who is a little underskilled but brash and has big ideas. Uh, that That is pretty much always my character. And if we're sitting around and somebody points out like, oh, actually we, you know, we're playing 3E or something. We really need somebody with a search skill. I'm like, well... Maybe I'm not as epically underprepared as I was originally going to make my character. Let me see how I can work that out. And it, I like the, the twist. And I get that not everybody does. We actually got some really strong feedback on Dungeon World because people were really upset that somebody else has a thing on their character sheet. That talks that, about them. That yeah. talks about them. And that was just, no, not happening. Yeah, and I mean, you know, this guy, he'll he'll play different characters a, a little bit. But I mean, it's his favorite time... And if he can ever find a place where he can use those kind of skills, uh, he'll do it. If he can ever find a place where he can sail a ship, he'll do it. Mm-hmm. So if he builds a character that is not built for that, he'll still play that way in-game. And it will just be suboptimal because of the kind of game. But for for games like uh, Apocalypse World, for games like you know Burning Wheel, definitely. For games like Fate, uh, building in-person is so important because of the number of ties that your characters have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that D&D doesn't tend to care about the ties between characters. It doesn't care about the ties. Um, I think that building together, uh, people will tend to make those ties. Sure. Uh, this is part of why I'm a fan of building together. Um, because, uh, honestly, even in Dungeon World, sometimes the, the amount of connection can be... Uh, like, it, it is a little heavy-handed because it's making you do those connections whereas sure. if you have a whole bunch of people make D characters while sitting in the same room and they're they're at least talkative enough to mention things as they go the characters will end up being intertwined in well, some so, ways so this kind of goes back a step too right when we're talking about setting an objective and theme um the themes and objectives that we come up with with these characters are oh guys you know we should totally take down the dragon Mm-hmm. Uh, and okay, so what kind of group would we need to be in? It's like, well, you know, I'm going to be the priest who thinks the dragon is a heretic or something, and oh, well, I'm going to be your, your the priest's boyhood friend and whatever. And so all of those connections get built before the characters mm-hmm. get built. Um, but but that's definitely group dependent. Like D and D does not support us. Yeah, and uh, so many of the things that I find in the the more recent games, including my own. Um, 
is that they try to encode things that people already, some people already know, mm -hmm. which is part of why uh, these games get a lot of love because the people who find, you know, Apocalypse World or Dungeon World and have never done some of these things before find it this huge revelatory experience. Right. Uh, and then people get to it and they already know these things and it feels like it's talking down to them and somebody's, you know, trying to sell the thing you already know how to do. Um it's not to say that you couldn't you couldn't do a game where you start in a tavern. You you couldn't. Like that's possible. Yeah. Uh, though I mean, the, starting in a, a tavern is such an anti-pattern unless you're actually doing the game of like adventurers are kind of assholes. Like that's the game where you start in the tavern as like all the adventurers are sitting there and like the poor village people are hating you for drinking all their mead. And, well, the uh, problem the problem that I have so talking about first session uh, is. Introducing this thing, uh, everybody talks about their characters for a minute so you know what the heck is going on, and then having kind of moments of silence where nobody quite knows what they should do, or, or when you get to the part in the dungeon and you're like, okay, what do you do? And then everybody's like, well, I don't know. Uh, I guess we go this way because we haven't been there, mm -hmm. or you have two two passageways, which way do you go, right? And people just kind of flipping a coin or, or deferring decisions, right? But that's, uh, that that's I think, actually fine, uh, especially because as long as those decisions are having repercussions, like if you are adventurers who manage to make it into a cave with no idea which path to go down and you have to flip a coin, um, it's not just your players flipping the coin it's just the characters basically flipping a coin and saying well we have no idea right um and as long as you're not doing kind of the uh heisenberg dungeon where right is now the direction that they were already supposed to go uh as long as there was some there is something to the left that's now they've now made a decision and the fact that they were unprepared for the decision is just probably going to get them in more trouble um right the meta the metaphorical dungeon decision right where uh, they're arguing about two possible parts of a plan mm -hmm. for out of game like half an hour, mm -hmm. and and there are games that deal with this, right? Burning Wheel deals with this and tells you here's a tool, use this tool as the GM. And it's funny because you always talk so much about uh, Duel of Wits as a thing to settle interplayer disputes, which I uh, honestly I actually don't even feel it's good for that, and I never use it for that. Really? Yeah. So the the great thing about it to me is that uh, the groups that I've played that came from D&D &D are used to having, like, 12-hour sessions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, epic 12-hour weekend sessions where you play several days in a row of that. And so an argument that could last an hour and a half while everybody's eating snacks is not unheard of in, yeah. in, in that group. And... You know, the first 15 minutes are pretty interesting, but then everybody starts saying the same thing. And unless you have some kind of either facilitator to shut it down uh, or or some kind of mechanical, well, this is the way it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, or can make sure that the DM says, well, you've been arguing for an hour, so this stuff happens. Mm -hmm. uh, having a tool in the game that you can just turn to and say, well, the book says is, is so huge. Uh, and having that, that tool... Uh... There are tools for that in other games as well that, uh, like, if, if the players are having this much debate over something, they're using time and it's a random monster chat. Like, there are, sure. there are lots of solutions to it. Um, and it, partially also, this is just so far outside of my typical gaming. Like, I, we are not big on that kind of discussion, uh... Yeah. Right. See, this is this is the uh, the reason for it is that this group is very tactical and very strategic, and they're all planners and hardcore. And well, here's my twenty step plan. If we do it perfectly, then everything's going to be awesome, right? Yeah. Uh, and it ends up producing really crazy things. And your group is screw it, let's go, right? Exactly. Yeah. We uh, this is part of why Monster Hearts works so well for us because Monster Hearts has a little section of the rules that says basically your character's a stolen car and you just drive them like crazy and that's pretty much how we play all our characters they're all stolen cars and so a game like that we're we're yeah it's fantastic so first moment of first session uh this is in some ways uh, a dichotomy I, I keep on thinking that there are two main approaches and i'm sure you'll point out another one <laughs> but i feel like most games <coughs> fall into kind of two major camps either you start the game with um an immediate problem that provokes action in media res 
type start. In media res, uh, I mean, I guess I, in media res always means something. You are in the action. In the action, as opposed to like a action that will have to happen soon. Okay. But I mean, the, that's nitpicking. Yes, basically in media res. Uh, like there, we already through whatever mechanism have agreed on uh, a problem that is going to start play. And this is actually kind of the oldest way to approach it. Uh, because all the classic D&D game basically starts with this. And they don't call it in media res and they don't use all of these terms that have grown up around it because gaming has grown so much but basically the the game starts with we've all agreed that we're going to go into a dungeon and the first problem that we have is going into a dungeon and we're going to start with that uh, and Moldvay, i actually wrote down the quote from Moldvay because i still think this is probably the definitive uh for at least one flavor of D, like the definitive statement of how you start a session uh at the start of the game the players enter the dungeon and the dm describes the what the characters can see like that is uh, it's amazing that we can have this entire discussion about how to start a game, but that one sentence also entirely describes how to start a game. Right. It's it's Newtonian, right? A party in motion will stay in motion. Yeah. Uh, and a party at rest, like, good luck. <laughs> uh, and and that's, that's the moment of silence and what do we do next and where should we go uh, that I don't like very much. You know, especially... Uh, a lot of my experiences, which don't lead to the campaign game, but a lot of my experiences with these are demo games. Mm -hmm. It's like, we have four hours, and if I have a moment, if I have 15 minutes where nobody knows what to do, uh, I can't just keep throwing stuff at you. That's not going to make for an interesting experience. Yeah. I want there to be, there are obviously several things to do, which one is the most interesting to you go. Yep. And I think that... Uh... This is something that comes up in published adventures um, pretty often, and it was actually one of my um, biggest complaints with uh, the early four, uh, 5e adventure mm -hmm. um, that starts with uh, basically you're um, on your way to the village and you come across uh, like the scene of an attack, basically. And if you don't, if you basically say we don't want to have an adventure, you don't have an adventure. Um, and this is. This is like the, to me, the anti-pattern in a lot of uh, adventure design. If you're going for this kind of opening, if you're going for uh, an adventure game, you, you start with that. You don't give the players the, do we have an adventure? And that, that's exactly what the start in a tavern is. Like you start in a tavern and the shadowy figure in the corner offers you a deal to go retrieve his ancient sword. You're literally asking the players if they want to play the game. Uh, it... It blows my mind sometimes. So what do you think about the Apocalypse World follow the characters around start? That's what I see as the other major vein of starting games, uh, which is you, instead of starting with uh, something that will immediately inspire action, you start with, okay, let's just kind of uh, see how things play out. Um, and part of that is that in Apocalypse World and in a lot of games, character creation... Uh, Man, a lot of games has a really character phrase. Character creation starts by putting a bunch of things right on the edge of the ledge. Yep. I like to think of it as either loading a gun, uh, yeah. and it's Chekhov's gun, or it's uh, taking a roller coaster to the top of the, the first hill. Sure. Um, and that's what character and world and et cetera, all the setup procedures from your game uh, are doing for you. They're, they're creating something that is about to fall into motion so that right. you can just kind of follow things around. Uh, and the other main thing that Apocalypse World does that it can have uh it, it is really a fairly actiony game but it can do that with such a just fall around and see what happens start is that the rules are always going to push you towards action like as soon as that first move triggers uh the outcome of any move pretty much leads to a new situation that is likely to make you want to do things that are going to trigger more moves mm -hmm. uh so it doesn't have to give you a whole lot of stuff to go on yeah, I think I think starting with anything other than those two, like there are other starts, uh, but I don't think that any of them are good starts. Uh, oh. if, if you haven't if you haven't loaded the game up, either loaded the game up with tension, or said, "Hey, you're already going down that first hill. Good luck." Uh, either you're going up the first hill, which I guess you could do, um, you know, and and kind of initialize this game with, okay, so. We're going to start in the tavern, and something is just about to happen. But that's basically you're at the top of the hill, well, right? The the thing that um, I think is the criticism of both of these is that some people want the build-up. Like, they, uh, you want the... 
if you're starting with either of those, it feels like you've um, you've gotten the easy way up, kind of. You haven't earned your adventure, or it's not organically happening. Like that, we've just you know story said that this is going to happen, um, which, which I get. Um, right, but the first roller coaster drop isn't the big one. Yeah, right. That's that's the big thing is that you know good good design of uh, of of any kind of plot is is not okay. Here's all we're just going to go down the entire time, right? And <laughs> so lift you all the way up, and then scream for half an hour, and that's the end. Of, that's that. That's not how roller coasters work, right? You have to have varying degrees of tension. You have to have varying degrees of action. You have to have quiet periods and loud periods. And this is a really long roller coaster. I think that the thing that sometimes uh, I fall into with the roller coaster analogy is like you get to the top, and then everything is downhill. Like I, I fall into that with that analogy, but really. Uh, the way to look at it is that this first hill is just giving you enough momentum to then, and like some roller coasters have that extra little clicky thing in the middle that actually winds you up again. So you're not on momentum. Right. Um, and, and that's the way that I think about games. Like right. it, you can try to start at the bottom of the first hill and build up to your first hill, but I think it's better to start at the top of a small hill, roll down that one and then keep going from there because you can build up to a bigger hill, you can ratchet it back up again. All those things can happen from that point. Yeah, and in a way, a lot of these games do start you with the bottom, right? That initial ratcheting is, okay, so how are you guys connected? And and how is she connected to you? And, oh yeah, you two were going to go do something. Let's look at that. And, okay, so the initial walking around, like that, all of that is ratcheting it up. That's a really good point. I mean, in some ways, the, the setup to... Um, say Apocalypse World or uh, Sorcerer in a lot of ways. Right. Um, all of these are just taking the things that you could play out of if you wanted to right. and saying you probably don't want to. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting bit about, you know, people that have done, uh, that have jammed for a long time end up understanding what parts they can just cut. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you're going to go on a three-day ship voyage. I don't think anything interesting is going to happen, so we're just jump cutting to the end of that and let's keep going, Right. And, and the way that a lot of these systems set the first session are basically just rapid. Okay, so here let's just kind of talk about what happened before, and we don't need to do it in massive detail. We'll just cover it really quick. Um, and I think the, the parallel to this is um, if you're playing Moldvay, if you're playing DCC, yeah. uh, the, by sitting down to play the game, you've agreed on, we're going on an adventure, and then character creation doesn't have to do any more ratcheting up than that. Like, right. the, the buy-in... Uh, this is, in some ways, one of those genius things about D&D that is sometimes lost in the long history of it, but it's such a like elemental concept that you, if everybody buys into you're going on an adventure, uh, like it, from there on it's sold. Uh, right. You don't have to do any more ratcheting up. You're going to delve into this dungeon and you're going to get rich and then potentially die or potentially come back. In either order. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's... that. It, it really works. Um, so yeah, I think that those are kind of the two major camps, and there, there's lots of things within those. Um, I guess, in some ways, the, the, the third camp, which overlaps with both of those, is um, the very structured thing that, uh, uh, say, like Questlandia does. Um, Questlandia is this, uh, since it's not a game we've mentioned before, I'll give a little background on it. It's um, a game where the first thing you do is do... Uh, quite a bit of world building inspired by card draws. Um, and that sets up a world with problems, then you end up with characters in it. And different people, uh, the, this is maybe the coolest thing about the game, different people have um, each of the elements of the world that you came up with in front of them. And you're responsible for basically GMing that element. Um, so if you know a question comes up about uh, festivals, um, because this is a world where festivals are a big deal, the player with a festivals card gets to answer it. And fill in that. Um, but the the actual the setup is big and interesting, and then the gameplay is broken down into a set number of scenes per player, and each scene is kind of given a like in the first scene you need to do these kinds of things, um, which is it, it's kind of the in media res approach. Um, it's a little more regimented than I personally like, but I know it works for a lot of people. Yeah, I have a very strong improv, improv you know, feel to my game. So. So I'll do practically no prep before the game starts. And then, okay, what does everybody seem to care about as we ratchet this roller coaster up? And then, okay, what's one of those that I think is really cool? Let's go. 
Yep. Um, and then immediately, as soon as possible, somebody has to roll dice or draw cards or whatever. And I, I like that uh, in a very organic kind of way. Like, I, I really regimented scenes have just never clicked for me. It's probably my biggest complaint with Burning Empires, which is otherwise a game that I absolutely love. Uh, but the really regimented, you know, you're going to do a scene, you're going to do a scene, you're, and scenes being kind of discrete units. Because all gameplay kind of becomes scenes in, like, the film sense that eventually we kind of cut through time. I think, as, I think as GM you have to be aware of that um, because the idea of cinematic storytelling is so important as a GM. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that keeping that in mind and remembering that you can do things like, okay, so we're going to fade out here or... Uh, Gosh, I was watching uh, every frame of picture or something. Uh, every uh, frame of painting. Yes, uh, and a he wonderful series. He has a uh, a video about video essays mm-hmm. and about several very important principles about video essays, which include uh, "Meanwhile Back at the Ranch," which is the idea that you'll take one piece and ramp it up to highest tension, and then cut to the other piece and keep going. Um, and you can do this in an RPG. It's just cinematic storytelling. You can be, you can have a split party. The goblin is about to hit you with his sword. Let's talk about the other group for a second. And the people, like, this is awesome in play. The interesting thing is, once you, uh, I, I've been in so many internet internet debates about really stupid things at this point, that once you say <laughs> cinematic and storytelling, sure. Uh, Probably nobody that listens to this because it's us, but somebody somewhere has just zoned out and written us off as. Um, but I think it, the the reason that stuff like that, I, I think, really connects with people is that we're so surrounded by this way of communicating things already. It's right. not that you know, as a GM, you need to be a filmmaker, but just that uh, the techniques of film are ones that everybody now understands. Right. And and I mean a game is an experience. An experience the more senses you can engage with the experience, the better. And not because you showed up without taking a shower, but because you because <laughs> you're introducing the scene and saying, you know, it's raining outside and you smell the dirt inside and and something really odd is in the air and a little bit of static electricity and that kind of stuff is you know that that draws people in and makes it's it's an engaging experience. So. And this ties into one of the the things that I uh, had written down in my notes for things to do in pitching and in a first session mm-hmm. to help games get started, which is uh, touchstones, um, both in techniques like you're talking about, like everybody understands, uh, you know, let's cut to over here, and that's uh, and the dramatic sensibility of oh, what about uh, and going to the the thief who wandered off however long ago. Um, but also just flat up using cultural touchstones that you think your players will get. Right. Uh, especially when pitching, but even with the first session. Uh, we were making our Night Witches characters, and uh, at one point I realized I was kind of making Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica. And instead of just kind of like keeping that on the DL and like uh, not saying that, I just said to all my friends who I knew have seen Battlestar Galactica, oh, I just realized I'm pretty much making Starbuck. Everybody kind of like nods, and uh, it led into something else, which is a another thing that I wanted to mention is a great technique. Um, when it comes to questions, leading questions, mm-hmm. uh, Night Witches does a great job of this. So we already mentioned asking questions is a big thing, um, but leading a asking a question that already has a statement embedded in it. Uh, the the if you were uh, ever caught with the like how long since you've uh, when did you stop beating your wife kind of thing. Right. Uh, when you ask a question like that in character or to a character, um, people always respond. Whereas if you ask, like, what does your character care about? It's yeah. just so open-ended. It's so open-ended. But yeah. uh, Night Witches has great ones. Uh, the one that my character that uh, led into this whole Starbuck thing is um, how uh, what did your character do the first time they were... Uh, flunked in f- flight school wrongfully or something like that. There was an implication that like you 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 were actually, or at least in my head, there was an implication. Who right. knows? Maybe I'm really deep in my character. <laughs> uh, but th- that totally made it crystallize my head. Like, no, I'm the person who says screw you, and then does something so ridiculous that you kind of have to admit that she's good. Right. Um, yeah, the, that's that's my favorite kind of adventure design. Right. There, there's the there's the classic adventure design, which is here's your three modules, and you're going to proceed through these three modules in an orderly path, and maybe it'll branch right here, but then it'll all come back at the end of that module. 
And then there's the dungeon starter style of adventure modules, which are, here's a bunch of things to read through and think about before the game starts, and here's a bunch of questions to ask that are super leading, and then, you know, here's some things to think about so that while you're playing, you are remembering, oh yeah, this is a scent that I hadn't thought of, or this is a sight or a sound that I hadn't thought of before. See, I actually really love both of those. Like, I, I don't see one of them as... Uh... I mean, I don't think you're trying to say that one of them is absolutely better, but I don't even see one of them as better for me. Um, so, for the reason is, all goes back to my improv game style, mm-hmm. right? I feel very locked in by an adventure module that says, okay, when they're done with this, they're going to do this. And I, I think uh, you're, you feel locked in by bad modules, honestly. Very like, possible. The, the, the best, uh, I mean, the... The best lines of adventures out there these days are Lamentations of the Flame Princess and Dungeon Recall Classics, both of which have adventures that, as a GM, I find very... Um, they they grab you and they give you the things you need uh, without giving you the things that you don't, like the, uh, you know, the locked-in stuff. And they're, honestly, they're fun to read. Um, I tried... What is it? Horde of the Dragon? Or no, what's the one in the starter box for 5th edition? It's oh, not gosh. Dragon Queen. It's No idea. Um, oh, I can't the, recall this the name is, of it. This is how much I don't like them, is that I don't even read them anymore. I, I borrowed it from a friend and was like, okay, i got to see what this 5th edition thing's all about. Uh, because, I, I mean, I read the rules and stuff, but I want to see what their adventures were like. Right. They, especially the sample one in the initial book. Because this communicates so much of what the game is about. Right. Um, and I had been... Uh, I guess this was before I started my DCC game, I think. Um, but anyway, I was you know familiar with uh, DCC adventures and Lamentations adventures, both of which, if nothing else, are fun to read. I made it through the first major set of encounters, I think, and I'm just like I I cannot be bothered to read more of this. It's like reading video game script. Um, um, but yeah, back to the question. Yeah. Uh, so during the first session, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? What are you writing down? Uh. Unresolved. So this was another thing that I already have on my notes. Unresolved questions. Yeah. Because um, we talked totally. a lot about questions, and and they're questions that you have are also important. Yep. And even questions uh, that people don't want to answer now. Um, mm-hmm. Like we're my gaming group is big on kind of rules as written. So if the game says answer these before a start of play, we, we do. But um, we also often have follow up questions that we deliberately leave open. Right. Um, and so, like, we're playing Night Witches, and uh, one of the characters, who do you write letters home to? Um, one of her option was uh, that she chose was the editor. And all of us were like, "Well, who's the editor? Like, well, what's <laughs> up with this?" And she's like, "I don't, I don't know. We're going to find out in play." Sure. I, I write, and you know, we kind of discussed. Okay, well, what do we know of this? Which is all kind of all our play, uh, all our characters know that she's been writing letters to the editor. And our character maybe knows more about it, but we're going to find out more in play. Right. So leaving unresolved questions, and I, I think um, the the TV show Lost is both the best and worst example of this. <laughs> uh, because if you continue to leave unresolved questions, eventually you end up, you, you can't Nobody do cares about them anymore. Yeah, you have to leave them open when people are still interested in them and eventually resolve them. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think anything... Anything that people are curious about in play, anything that seems to get a lot of attention mm-hmm. in play, uh, anything where you're like, well, you know, I don't feel like this person really did very much, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe I should at least revisit that and think about why, or or subplots, mm-hmm. right? Uh, okay, we're going down into this dungeon, and we're gonna grab a whole bunch of treasure, and it's gonna be awesome, and at some point during this thing. Uh, somebody finds a sword and they pay lots of attention to the sword. Yep. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna figure out, at least have something open to figure out, okay, well, what, what's going on with this thing and where are they, what are they going to do with it when they get back with it and all that kind of stuff. The, the thing that I often do, um, I've found that for me, the more I can make my notes punchy descriptions to myself, the more they stick out. So I tend to... Um, basically record things that stand out to me in uh, ways that stand out to me. Uh, so the, the funny thing is, I keep my notes for our podcast in the same uh, book I use for GMing, cool. so I can actually look at some of these things, which is just like, uh, uh, Ty Will loves Tiramore, question mark. Uh, <laughs> and the things that I write for my own game, uh, the games that I play in, as, a one, as opposed to ones that I... Uh, run are even better because you end up with uh, stuff like we. 
we learned in our Apocalypse World Dark Ages game that there were uh, key gods of the old gods, the sea god, the fire god, the earth god, the sky god, and then crossed out is heart god. Because uh, obviously it's Captain Planet. But the, things like this make me remember the game more. So I, I actually deliberately try and make my notes entertaining to myself. Yes. Um, Artifacts of play. I love them. Yep. Um, oh, so yeah, I, I'm usually writing down kind of a play-by-play in the broadest sense. Uh, and I, I'm doing it in like the the, the pithy way, not the uh, noting details way. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm often... Uh, examining play for <clears throat> stuff that kind of doesn't seem to touch the system at all. Mm-hmm. So if if we're playing D and D three five and people start getting into a heated discussion about politics, or if we're playing uh, if we're playing it and they start to want to found a kingdom because my group in Oregon always wants to found a kingdom, uh, and the system doesn't really have very many rules for that, I'm going to write all of that stuff down and be like, mm-hmm. well. Maybe I can steal rules for this, yep. uh, which is my big next point about this is game design. Mm-hmm. That your first session is a session of, does everything work? Are we missing anything from the book? Do we forget any rules? Are we engaging everything well? I, I would go a step further. All play, uh, even from players, sure. players and GM, all play is game design. Uh, that, that's like the, the dark secret of game design and also the reason that RPGs are awesome. Is yeah, that don't tell everybody. <laughs> I'm out of a job now. Done. Um, but no, the play is game design, and the thing that we often refer to as game design, like the thing that produces books that we sell to other people, is just writing down the things you did and trying to provide uh, ways for other people to do them. Yeah, difficult, more difficult than, than it seems. Yeah, th- there's an extra art to actually explaining it to other people. And in a lot of when we talk about really good game designers, often it's people that have a really good way of explaining things, and really good, not always in like the clear literary sense of it, but really good in the can grab people. Apocalypse World is not a clearly written game, but it's wonderfully explained in that it gets across a lot with the choice of doing some things badly. Yeah, I think there's so much of that of that first session, first few sessions, especially with a relatively new system to the group, that is just kind of reaching around in the dark mm-hmm. and. Okay, so how exactly does it work when I'm trying to hit somebody? How exactly does it work when I'm trying to, to talk to somebody? You know, oh, I want to go do this. Okay, well, I guess that just happens because I don't know how the rules to that work, and I'm not going to spend half an hour looking through the book about it. And looking around in the dark actually leads into one of my other major things to do in a first session, which is in- introduce some randomness. Sure. Um, and I guess this doesn't technically apply to all games because some games, uh, like if you're already playing a game that is... Um, more oriented towards non-random resolution, maybe not. But uh, I like to, early on, do some things that surprise me as well, which often means something random. And a lot of games have this built in in really smart ways, like Dungeon Call Classics. Um, And even if you are playing a game without a random element, like uh, um, Undying has this wonderful thing where uh, you, you start out the game by taking, at least in some scenarios, and it's not a fully written game, so who knows what scenarios there are, uh, those are, but um, you, even with a game that is uh, normally diceless, it's a game, so Undying is uh, Vampire the Masquerade via Apocalypse World and focusing down, because Vampire the Masquerade is so much like all the vampire things, and this is very much the uh, political scheming element of it. Um, but you start play by, despite there being no dice in the game, taking your tokens that you use to track how much blood you have, dropping some of them onto the list of people in the town, and the ones that they fall onto are dead. Like, something has just happened to them. And that's how you upset the scenario. Oh and gosh. introducing that kind of randomness to the game early on gives you uh, a chance to surprise everybody, including yourself, keep everybody on your toes, and kind of, in some ways, that's kind of uh, one of your first ratchets up that first hill. Uh, and other games like Dungeon Crawl Classics, obviously a very random game, and the best thing, uh, I've run a couple of funnels with it, one of which had fewer chances for like corruption and spell effects and stuff, and the more, like that game really benefits from early on establishing a lot of crazy stuff. Right. Yeah, oh man, the funnel, the funnel is crazy. Starting, starting a long-term DCC campaign, uh, just the idea that, okay, well, this guy survived, and I have no idea how he did, but, uh, you know, too bad for my 16 decks, uh, you know, guy that I really wanted to be a ranger, but, you know, what are you going to do, right? 
He's going to have a tough time being a ranger in D- Dungeon Crawl Classics. Well, you know. <laughs> let's, let's, let's hack DCC to include it, right? Yeah. He'll have a bow and he'll talk to his animals. So during the first session, you're doing all this game design uh, and writing all these things down and keeping track of all this stuff for prep later and, and making sure that everybody's having a good time and all the normal GM stuff that shows up in the Dungeon Master's Guide. And then the first session ends and what? That really depends on the game. I, well, you're running your Apocalypse World campaign, and yeah. I'm running my D&D 5 campaign. There are, there are best practices that apply to most of the games, I think, sure. which are probably, you want to, like, whatever kind of way that you've been writing down things, uh, you want to grab some of those to try and reincorporate. Um, if possible, this is, this is the end of every session to me, but it's especially good at the end of the first session, is some kind of recap slash debrief. decompress de- debrief kind of thing decompress makes it sound like you've just been stressing for hours um, <laughs> which you may have you may have but you might have also just been hanging out drinking a beer for a few hours and yeah yeah i i debrief all of my sessions i i i hate the terms like debrief it sounds so like formal and like uh <laughs> all of the I, i've got i've my my family is a military family so I, uh, can't, I can't help but be formal but i mean the the debrief it's not very formal it's just okay um we are officially done with session today what does everybody feel about the system what does everybody feel about what we're doing how does everybody feel about how we did you know do you feel like this sucked or was awesome see i uh I'm not even a fan of talking about it. If I have to ask those questions, I don't want to. Uh, so my group does actually often discuss those things because we're we're all game design. Well, everybody's a game designer because you're playing oh, the game. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. We, we, most of us have published things um, or are publishing things. Um, like we we. So you end up talking about it from a game design perspective often and. Sometimes to our detriment, honestly. Like, we play somebody else's published game, and we're still like, uh... I, I think it, need, it needs a change here and a change here, and you have no idea, because you've yeah. only played it once. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the uh, this is part of why there's the end-of-session move in Dungeon World that works the way it does, sure. because um, if I feel like if there are things that are important to do bookkeeping-wise at the end of a session for, like, game stuff, mm-hmm. um, you end up having some of those discussions very organically, which is part of why... Uh, Artha Awards and Burning Wheel are so great because they make you, uh, you know, you, you don't feel like, oh, we have to discuss how much we liked our game tonight, but you end up discussing what happened tonight and picking out cool things from it because you have to award Artha. Yeah, I feel like uh, one of the things that's really important to me is the idea of uh, an atom of game design, A-T-O-M of game design. And, and oh, I thought it was you and... <laughs> and well, we are very important to game design, apparently. Um so, so the concept is uh, Richard Garfield's, I think, and the idea, or, or Raf Coster. Oh, man, I'm going to feel horrible. It's probably Raf Coster. Anyways, the concept is that uh, what's the smallest element of play that feels satisfying? And I feel like in RPGs, almost always, that's going to be the session. Um, because it doesn't feel very satisfying to just engage with the mechanic as an atomic unit. There needs to be a bunch of build-up to that, and then you engage, and then a bunch of cooldown. And most of these games have a lot of that. And if you just cut in the middle, it's not satisfying. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think there's a, a few games that stretch that, but they're not always... Uh, like, 4th edition, I actually feel like if you just did the... Com- like if you But you'd have to do a full combat encounter. Yeah, and that takes a while. Could and that's a, that takes, like... That's, that is a session. Yeah, 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 right. Um, so, so I feel like the session is, is pretty close to uh, an atomic piece of an RPG. And so I want that atomic piece to have, here's the intro, and then we're going to play for four hours or whatever, and then there needs to be some kind of closure, right? You don't just be like, okay, session ends, close book, bye. Um, there's time afterwards, <laughs> right? There, there is time. Uh, and, and that time might not be a, you know, okay, we're going to take minutes during our debrief, right? Mm-hmm. That time is, okay, you know, refill my whiskey glass and let's hang out for a little while talking about just whatever, but probably the game because that's what you've just been doing for four hours. But yeah. you're not playing anymore, right? It's meta text. I, I just feel like uh, I, this is the tough thing. Uh, so I feel like that discussion is really important, but the more you have to force it, the less good it is. Um, like, so I, I agree. Like, if if you if your players 
uh, all sit around. Like, if you, if everybody when play stops, you're kind of like, okay, we're done for the night, and everybody doesn't immediately shove their stuff in the backpack, it's going to happen, and it, yeah, it's yeah. so good. But if I have to tell people, like, wait, 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 we have to, which is part of why I like games that build in a, a last element of play that kind of gracefully takes you out of that play mode, because uh, I, I feel like it makes people less likely to just zip up in their backpack and go. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... I just feel like there there needs to be some closure at end of session. So I'm okay. Uh, the end of session move is cool for that. Um, I don't think it's enough, but that's because of the way I'd like to facilitate. Um, I, and it's not alone enough, but I think that it uh, the the idea it allows you to move from playing game to post playing game exactly, kind of and it, and it provokes a discussion about the things that just happened, right? Which is the first step to everybody being like, oh, but you know, I didn't like this or I did like this. Um, do you write up session reports or have people write up session reports? Oh, gosh. Uh, no. Um, so I personally will write up session reports these days partially because um, so many people ask me about my gaming that I kind of feel like I might as pre- might as well preemptively get it out there. Right. Um, plus, often we're playing like really cool things from uh, that may not be released yet, and so I want to talk about them so that people know about them to build up hype because I want them to succeed. Right. Um, but uh, the idea, this, oh man, this is the first thing that I can tell you not to do during your first session. Don't start handing out the, like, uh, whoever writes up the session report is going to get XP. Because totally. you've just assigned homework for your game. Uh, like, <laughs> when was the last time Not you were excited to get right? homework? In, yeah. Unless you go to the Jean Grey Academy. There was an entire uh, issue of the comic about how awesome homework is. But other than that, you don't want to assign homework. Yeah, I I end up getting groups where people want to write their person their characters perspective. Oh, that's fantastic. Right. If, yeah, but I'm I'm not going to give the assignment to somebody. Yeah. Uh, and, sorry, go ahead. I'll cut you off there. So 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 you end up with, you know, okay, yeah, totally write it up and then send it send it out to the group and you end up with four interesting perspectives that are totally different on on what just happened in the session. Mm-hmm. And that's even more feedback into okay, how is this game working to produce the kind of thing that these people want to do and and where are we going to move and what are people really interested in and you know, how can I, you know, set up my fronts cuz I don't totally do fronts in D&D. Uh, how do I set these up so that, you know, I know what the heck is is happening in the world because mm-hmm. if the world isn't doing stuff while the characters are playing, uh, why not just go play a computer RPG? Yep. Yeah, and uh, the my, my apprehension about trying to get people to do that is why I often, um, I actually am somewhat against the idea of like campaign wikis. Sure. Um, because I, I've done them in the past, but it always ends up setting this expectation that uh, between sessions you're going to have work to do. Um and when I when I do them, they are purely for my own benefit. Yeah, that that is why they're because my memory sucks. Uh, to be totally blunt, this yep. is why I don't do very much prep. This is why I hate adventure modules. This is why I, you know, write things down during play because I am not going to remember that detail uh, in that book somewhere. Yep. Uh, so so having the wiki lets me at least say, oh, I think they're going to go fight this thing next. Let me revisit what that thing is and what it cares about and where it might be. Yeah, yeah, and that um, having some way, this is one of those things where uh, Apocalypse World gets a lot of credit for taking things that a lot of people did in a more uh, organic way and giving everybody a structure for doing it. Mm-hmm. And it deserves credit for that, don't get me wrong. Like, it's a brilliant insight to crystallize these things. But for the people who hate it for crystallizing those things, no, it's not a problem that, like, it's spelling out things that already, people already do. And one of those is taking these kind of freeform notes about just, like, oh, uh, orcs are probably going to do this. And um, and the, the thing that gets lost in those a lot, and we didn't do a good job of emphasizing this in Dungeon World, is uh, any time in that first session that I notice something that's going to come to fruition later, I write down, um, like, either a clock if I'm feeling artistic or just, like, a series of bubbles to fill in or something. Um, write clocks for everything. This is something that I think John Harbour is really going to really emphasize in Blades because he does it a lot. Um, it's a huge tool to just write down all the things that are going on in really brief, just like uh, the there's a tunnel being dug under the wall. Yeah. Uh, right. This guy escaped from the encounter, and in a couple minutes, he's going to find somebody that he can tell about this stuff. Yep. And you writing those down in a way that you can keep on marking them between sessions is 
awesome. Uh, and then the the trick that I think you may see in a future design from somebody is turning that into advancement as well, uh, and turning it into kind of like it, it's a way to approach training that's a little maybe lighter weight. Um, you just say, okay, well, each time that you've spent time with uh, your your mentor, like I have one of those in this book because we were using it in one of our games. Um, you mark another circle, and when you get to the end of it, you can now take moves from this class or whatever. Uh, it, it's countdown clocks are everything, and they're one of the few things I regret not covering more in Dungeon World. Yeah, a lot of these games are just representations of change over time, mm-hmm. and and we get caught up. We at least me get caught up while you're playing in just seeing the one thread of play. And that's the one big piece, because it's it's the one piece that has teeth in most games, is that that's the piece of change over time. And remembering to change things outside of that piece uh, is hard to do, uh, which is another reason to take notes during play, right? Yep. Okay, so our top recommendations for getting a campaign, uh, starting a new campaign. Uh, know the book. Um, yeah. Know, uh, read it both critically and with an eye towards using it as it stands. Um, pitch it. Be able to, though, don't pitch it. Uh, be excited about it and have reasons to be excited and have a genuine interest in it and communicate that well to people. Yeah, knowing the system and being excited about the system for good reasons, that's important. And ramp that roller coaster to the top. Yep. Either in the first session or before the first session or whatever, but get it to the top of something using tools like leading questions uh establishing connections between the characters uh world building um in media res uh all of these things help you get that roller coaster to the top of the first hill so that you can enjoy the ride down and then use that momentum into your next session uh and you preserve that momentum by taking notes yep keeping track of what people care about making sure to remember the world outside of the session yep all of those things, which is interesting, uh, and incorporating some randomness in there too, so you get to enjoy the ride as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, some surprises for yourself. Oh um, man, players! Players are enough surprise to me. <laughs> they are, but uh, I, a part of it is the the thing that Apocalypse World talks about. Of uh, man, we're just going to keep on talking about Apocalypse World every session at this rate. Um, you're uh, declaiming responsibility for things. Um, the the players sure are providing a lot to me, and I'm likely providing a lot of unexpected things to them, but sometimes just telling them, like, nope, that wasn't me. Like, you threw those dice. You're the one who mutated your hand off. Yep. Sorry. Uh, that That is just brilliant. Um, cool. So hopefully we've helped some people get a new session start, or a new campaign started, and uh, we will be back with another episode in a couple weeks. Bye.